I'm excited because tonight we are starting a brand new series. And, uh, and not only is it our uh, a brand new series, but it's also our last series. So there are only six weeks left of Reckless before the end of the year. Do you realize that? Which means end of school. Woo. But it also means end of Reckless. Only six weeks left, including tonight. And so this year has flown by. And, uh, and so I'm excited because we're going to finish these last six weeks in a series that we're calling Rise Above. And so this series that we're in is going to be a little bit or a lot different than other series that we've done throughout the year. Because this particular series, we're going to be studying a book, or actually two books of the Bible. Uh, we're going to be looking at First and Second Timothy, which is in the New Testament, a couple of pastoral letters that were written uh, by the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to be spending the next six weeks as we finish out this year diving into these two books and talking about all of the things that it's saying. And so one of the reasons why I'm excited is because there is so much truth that is packed into these two books of the Bible and so much relevance to our lives. So hopefully you feel like every week things we're talking about, you feel like it's relevant and hopefully you're able to connect the dots between your life and what, the, what we're talking about. But, um, but especially as we're a part of this series, there's going to be some things that we're going to be studying and talking through that's going to have so many moments of impact and relevance to our lives and where we are today. And so that's one of the things that, that really, really excites me. And so just to give you a little bit of backstory of this, these two books. So these were written as letters by the Apostle Paul as an old man, all right? And he, these were written somewhere between the neighborhood of, of 64 and 67 AD, all right? Somewhere along those lines. And so they were written by Paul at the end of his life, all right? And he, so he's at the end of his life. In fact, at the end of, we'll, we'll get to this uh, the very last week. At the end of the second letter, he's saying, hey, my life is over. I'm done. Um, he's about to, he's in prison in Rome. He's about to be executed for his faith by Nero, the, um, the uh, Roman emperor. And so he knows and understands that about the time he's writing these, especially at the end, that the end is near. And he's about to be done with his life on this earth. And so he's writing it as, as an old man who over the past 30 years has spent his life serving God and advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's been doing the 30 years leading up to the writing of these letters. And so as part of that time, those 30 years has involved a lot of hardship and a lot of moments of difficulties and a lot of jail time and a lot of victories and successes and a lot of all, all kinds of different things from wins to trials and, and sufferings. And so he's writing this. Um, basically what he learned through this is he, he's learned to rise above all of it. Learn to, to rise above the, the challenges of this life and to live out his faith to the best of his ability. And so he's standing at the end of his life and he's writing these letters saying, hey, I've learned how to rise above all the stuff that you're going to deal with. Now, who he's specifically writing to is a young pastor named Timothy, which is how we get the, the name Timothy in First and Second Timothy. So he's writing these letters to a young pastor named Timothy, who in a lot of ways, Paul is like his spiritual father. All right, Timothy has looked up to Paul. Paul actually, through, it was through Paul's ministry that Timothy came to faith in Jesus. 
And so now Timothy is trying to live out his faith, and he's now trying to lead a church, and he's now trying to advance the gospel. And so Paul is writing these things to Timothy to try to prepare him for the things that he's going to see in his life that's ahead of him. So when I thought about this, the first thought that came to my, my mind of seeing Paul as like the old man and t- writing to, to Timothy, kind of this young pastor, to me it, it reminded me of sitting on a porch in a rocking chair with your grandpa. All right, has anybody ever done this? Raise your hand if you've done this. You got a grand, grandparent or somebody, you sat on a rocking chair, and maybe it was you didn't want to do this. Maybe grandpa was like, hey boy, sit down here and let me talk to you, right? So you're sitting on a front porch or whatever, and maybe, maybe it's not a grandparent, maybe it's another older person, maybe it's like a Tyler Newsom, right, who is really old. Um, and he's, these are actually his rocking chairs from his front porch in downtown Dallas that you can drive by and see. And you might even see him out there rocking and pointing at cars and waving to people. Um, so maybe it's somebody that you sat down with, right? Somebody who has a lot of wisdom in their life, and they're sitting down and they're sharing their stories of their life and adventures they've been on and things that they've learned, hardships that they've had to overcome, and in trying to, in some form or fashion, impart some wisdom and truth into your life. And so either, I don't know how, what this has looked like for you, but so either we can kind of roll our eyes and go, oh man, here goes another one of grandpa's long stories, and we sort of tune out, or we kind of lean in and we and we're anxious to learn and understand some things because we feel like maybe there's some wisdom that I can gain that's going to help me on my life that I've yet to live. And so as I've thought through this, but my, my hope is that we will lean in to some of these things that we're going to be talking about, to some of these things that, that the Apostle Paul is sharing, so that we can learn how to rise above and live out this life and this calling that God has for us. So if you guys have your Bibles, I want you to open to 1 Timothy chapter 1. So if you go New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, you've got Galatians, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and then you've got 1 Timothy, all right? If it helps you, it's in uh, page 969 on my, in my Bible, if that helps. So Timothy, or Paul starts off this letter to Timothy, and he says, hey, this is Paul, and I'm writing to my, my spiritual son, my son of the faith, Timothy. And then he goes into, like, warning against false teachers and things like that, and, uh, and some things that he wants to warn Timothy about as a pastor of saying, hey, be careful, these people are going to be sh- spreading lies and, and trying to falsify the gospel and things that they're going to try to lead people astray, so you've got to be careful about these things. And so then, in verse 12, he kind of takes a shift and he goes into the next thing that he's talking about. And that's the first, this is the first passage that we're going to be looking at tonight. So we're going to look at 1 Timothy 1, verse uh, 12 through 17. And so here's what he says. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence or in my rude behavior, my arrogance, I persecuted the church or his, his people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that came 
from Christ Jesus. Verse 15, he says something I want, want you to really zone in on. He says, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them all. Another version may say, I'm the chief of them all or the chief of sinners. Verse 16, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. And then he finishes this section by saying, all honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. So Paul has some really, really powerful things that that we're going to talk about over the next few minutes. But before we get into some of the specifics of of what he's saying, we've got to understand a little bit of the history of Paul. Okay? So before Paul was Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul writing books in the New Testament, he was Saul, and he was persecuting Christians. So in his early years, he grew up Jewish and was very religious and in a lot of ways was a lot of the people that went toe-to-toe with Jesus as a Pharisee. And so because of Jesus's message and because of these early Christians and this movement of Christianity that's, that's taken place, Saul is rising up in opposition to this movement. And he starts arresting Christians and even having, in some cases, having them killed. And he is someone to, that is a threat to Christianity. He's someone that the early church, in a lot of ways, had to be careful of, had to watch out for. They were somebody, he was somebody that they had to avoid. In fact, I, I would imagine that a lot of Christians at that time did, in fact, look at him as the chief of sinners. They're looking at, at him and warning each other, going, hey, you've got to watch out for this guy. He'll have you arrested, he'll have you thrown in jail, he may even have you killed. And so that's, that was Saul's life. That's what he was doing. And he thought that he was in the right of doing that. And so it, one day, he's riding from one town to the next. And on his way to persecute more Christians at this other town, all of a sudden, Jesus appears to him, this bright light on the road, and he falls down on the ground. The people around him are blinded by this light. And Jesus asks him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so as a result of that encounter with Jesus, Saul actually transforms his life, or Jesus transforms his life. He turns his life over to Jesus, and he now becomes a follower of this movement that he was trying so hard to prevent and to stop. And yet, even after, in those days and and even months and however long it took after his conversion, Christians still didn't trust him, right? I mean, why would they? It took a a long period of time for Saul's reputation to be changed to where the early Christians actually began to realize, no, this guy's serious about this conversion that's happened. And he really is who he's now saying he is. Have you ever had a moment where maybe you've made a a huge mistake and and it costs you a lot and, and maybe, you know, other people become aware of it, maybe negatively it impacts you and your reputation, right? So word spreads, news travels fast, and, and all of a sudden people are aware of this mistake that you've made, and it's, and it's really hard for you to get away from that or get out from under that mistake that you've made. You ever been there? 
And sometimes if we find ourselves in that situation where we make a mistake, we fall short, other people are aware of it, our reputation gets ruined, we lose trust and respect from people that we had, had it from before, what's the best way to go about repairing that? It really is just to own it, right? We just own that mistake that we've made. Maybe we go back to those people and we say, hey, look, that's not who I want to be. That's not, that's not what I want to be known for. And we just own up to that mistake that we've made. If we start getting angry or, you know, mad or, or any of those kind of things because we've lost trust, then that just makes things worse in a lot of cases. I mean, if, if we want to begin the, the process of fixing our reputation or changing people's mindset or perception of us or change mistakes that we've made in our past, the best way to go about doing it is to own up to those mistakes, to go to those people even publicly and say, hey, look, I, I was wrong in that situation. Would you forgive me for doing that? And then just begin that slow process of building, rebuilding that reputation and who we are. And so that's in a lot of ways what Paul had to do with, with the early church. But even then, as he's writing this letter, he's, I think as an old man, he's looking back on his life and he's, he's looking and re- being reminded all over again of all of those mistakes and failures and shortcomings that he's made as the chief of sinners and seeing how desperately in need of God's grace he has been. And I think in a lot of ways, he's looking back on his life and he's seeing the grace of God as that thread throughout his life. And I think he's trying in some ways through this letter to write to Timothy to say, hey, look, there are going to be mistakes that you're going to make in your life, and they may be big, but God's grace is bigger and more powerful than any mistake that you're going to make in your past. Now, in order for us to, I think, really fully grab a hold of that and really experience it, what I think Paul wants us to, to understand and to value the grace of God, and to, to when we talk about the grace of God and we think about our life and we go, man, let me tell you all the moments and the times God's grace has blown me away. I think that's the goal in what Paul is wanting for Timothy and what he's wanting for us. But I think there's a couple of things that stand in the way of God's grace really having power in our lives like what, what it should have. And so here's the first one, I think, that could keep us from, from the power of God's grace. The first thing is that we don't feel like we need it. Maybe this is that first thing that stands in the way. Now, unless we're super arrogant, only the really arrogant people are going to be like, yeah, I don't really have any mistakes. I don't really have any you know, things I look back on and I regret. Or I'm actually, I'm actually a really, really good person. Right? I mean, I think most of us can, can acknowledge, yeah, I've, I've made mistakes. I've fallen short. Man, I've, I've screwed some things up. But maybe in some cases, we really struggle with feeling like we need God's grace. Or at least maybe we feel like we don't need God's grace as much as other people do. Maybe we look at our lives and we go, yeah, I need God's grace. Like I need it in this moment, in this moment. But man, it's not that big of a deal. Man, and, and really, in all honesty, if I think of other people like the chief of sinners, man, I'm thinking of, of you know, so many other people that would be worse than me. Right? And maybe for some of us, that's kind of the mindset that we have. In other words, we don't view ourselves like Paul viewed himself as the chief of sinners. 
And if we don't view ourselves that way, then we really won't understand and experience the power of God's grace like we should. So over the last several weeks, um, and, and I'm sure many of you guys have heard this, there was a, a massive uh, sting operation that covered eight states. There were 76 people that were arrested in Georgia and Florida and other places around here. And they were charged with child exploitation. All over the news, big deal. And so child exploitation is kind of this broad brush of things, of charges that it could mean. But basically it, it can... It can range from possession of child pornography to having sex with a minor or a child. A minor could be any, anyone under 18 or even, or even 16, or even uh, child trafficking, which is a, a really big issue, unfortunately, in the city of Atlanta and, and in other parts of our country. And so child, child basically, e- exploitation can cover any of those charges. And so there were 76 people that were arrested and charged with child exploitation. Some really, I mean, awful crimes. And, and thankfully, the police were able to, to, to find these people and arrest them. And so, you know, I think all of us hope that, you know, justice is served in that situation and that these people are never able to exploit children in any way like this ever again. Just horrible, horrible situation. And so understandably, this, especially as it involved, involves kids and children, there were a lot of people that were enraged by this. A lot of people upset on social media. Um, a lot of people that were, that were just outraged by these, by these people and what had taken place in our own community and in other communities. And so, and again, I, I look at it as a dad. I'm like, man, if this were my own kids, I'd be enraged too. I'd be angry and upset. And so, there, and this is just kind of stirred up a, a, lot, of, a lot of anger. And so I, I saw some social media posts as, as police were making some of these, um, some of these arrests and just making the, the public aware of it. And so some of these social media posts, people started commenting their thoughts and, and opinions about these 76 people that were arrested. And so they made comments and, and things ranging from, they said, we should hang them all to let's shoot every last one of them. Uh, somebody said they have no place in our society they were calling them things like disgusting pigs, perverts, sick, pathetic people. Uh, and then one, one comment I read, the, the person even said, there is a special place in hell for people like this. And so as, as I was reading these comments, I thought, again, man, it's a horrible crime, horrible situation, um, you know, exploiting children in, in this way and things like that. But as I began to read, and especially as this one comment about being a, a special place in hell for people like this, I began to un- understand that there was a, a mindset that was, that was viewing these particular people in this sin. And, and kind of the mindset, I think, that was exposed, at least to me, was that we all have sin, but this sin right here is the worst, and these people are the worst. And I guess a, a question that, that came up in my mind, and again, understanding kind of the anger and the, and the rage that these people were feeling, and, and even a question I asked myself, and, and just want to ask you too, is do you think it hurts the heart of God just as much when people gossip or steal as it does when people exploit children? 
Because the Bible says that, that it, every sin hurts the heart of God. That every sin impacts him and every sin separates us from him and every sin is a big deal to God. What sin would you say in your eyes is the worst? Now just think about that question. I want you to answer that out loud. What question in your, in your opinion, in your own mind, would you say is the worst? What offense, if it took place, to you would be the worst and would almost be to you would be unforgivable? Now let me ask you this. Do you think that the sin in your life is just as bad as whatever sin that sin is to you? Whatever sin you would define as the worst, is the sin in your own life just as bad as that? Do you think that you need God's grace and God's forgiveness just as much for the sin in your own life as those people do that commit those other sins? And here's the thing, if the answer to that question is no, then I don't think we really understand our need for God's grace like we should. Now, let me explain this a little bit further. And you know what the definition of sin is, right? I mean, the definition, the meaning of sin is to miss the mark. So if you and I are aiming at a target, whatever that is, we're kicking a field goal, we're trying to nail it through the uprights, we're, you know, we've, we're playing darts and we're aiming for the bullseye. Whatever it is, whatever target it is that we're aiming at, does it really matter if we miss that target by a few inches or by a few miles? No, it really doesn't. What matters most is that we missed the target. We missed what we were aiming at. And that's the definition of sin. And the reality is, in terms of God's standard, the, the target that we're aiming at, according to what God says, is perfection. That's what we're aiming at. That's the target that you and I are shooting at. And so if that's the target that you and I are shooting at, then both of us, all of us, have missed the mark. We've all missed the mark. And because of that, you and I are all guilty of sin in God's eyes. And we're all in need of God's grace and God's forgiveness. Whether we feel like we missed it by a few inches or we feel like we missed it by a few miles. The point is, according to God's standard, we've missed the mark. And because we've missed the mark, you and I all need God's forgiveness. I love the, the song. One of my favorite worship songs is How Deep the Father's Love for Us. We actually sang it at the Good Friday service, and it was just a reminder all over again. And every, every time I hear that song, there's, a, there's a one particular lyric that really stands out the most. And it's when we get to the part where it says, it was my sin that held him there. Talking about held Jesus on the cross. And, and for me, it is a reminder all over again. Man, it doesn't matter about anybody else's sin. Because the truth is, I'm standing at the foot of the cross, looking up at Jesus, hanging on that cross, and I'm going, God, it's my sin that held you there. God, it's on me. 
I'm not worried about anybody else's sin. I'm not worried about what they've done. I'm not worried about mistakes they've made. God, it is my sin that has put you on that cross. It's my sin that held you there until it was accomplished. God, it is my death. I'm the one that deserves to be hanging on that cross. But Jesus, you did it for me. And when we understand that, that makes God's love and his forgiveness and what Paul is talking about so much more real and powerful. When we start looking at ourselves and going, I'm not, I'm not worried or concerned about other people's sin. God, my sin separated me from you. God, I am the chief of sinners. And God, I'm desperately in need of your forgiveness and your grace. And God's grace and his forgiveness is so powerful that it is stronger than the sin of gossip. It's stronger than the sin of stealing. It's stronger than someone who might kill Christians. Or it's stronger than anyone who might exploit children. As horrible as that is. Now the consequences may be different. And especially in terms of the law and the, and the punishment and things like that. And rightfully so. But God's grace and his forgiveness is available to all of us no matter what sin we commit. And we're all equally in need of it. But we'll fail to understand that and experience it as long as we don't think we'll need it. The other thing that that stands in the way sometimes of us experiencing the power of God's grace in our life is when we take it for granted. Now maybe this is where the pendulum has swung kind of the other extreme. And the mindset behind this is going, hey, God's love and grace is incredible. It is amazing. And it will cover all of my sins. So therefore, if God is so forgiving and loving, then why don't I just do whatever I want to do? And I'll be honest, I think maybe there's just as much or maybe more of us at that place than there are those of us who feel like we don't need God's grace in the first place. And maybe I don't know what your spring break looked like, but maybe that was a, kind of a, a reason behind some decisions that maybe you made over spring break of going, hey, look, God will forgive me anyway, so I'll just go ahead and do this. If God is loving and God's grace is so big, then I'll just live my life and do my thing, and whenever I need it, I'll just come running back to God and get the forgiveness that he's going to give me anyway. And man, that mindset... And any of us who have that mindset just reveals how little we understand about the salvation that God has given to us. Because here's the reality for any of us, really for all of us, before any of us put our faith and trust in Jesus as our Savior, we were dead in our sins. In other words, that was our life. We didn't have any choice in that. We just, we we lived our life and lived according to our sin nature. We were dead in our sins and we made sinful decisions. We did everything, whatever else the world did on a daily basis. That's just how we lived our life. And maybe some of us look at that and go, what's wrong with that? That's really true freedom, isn't it? I'm doing what I want to do. But the Bible actually refers to that as being dead in our sins or being enslaved to our, in our sin, to enslaved to our sins. That doesn't sound like that's a better thing. In fact, I don't know too many worse situations to be in than to be dead. And that's what is described for all of us before we've put our faith and trust in Jesus as Savior. We are dead in our sins. 
And in the moment where we put our faith and trust in Jesus as Savior, Jesus comes along and he rescues us out of that. He brings, he makes us alive and he rescues us out of that dead state. And he breathes life into us and he sets us free from that life of sin. And now you and I are free, living in true freedom to pursue God and love him the way that you and I were originally created to live. So we're experiencing true freedom once Jesus comes along and rescues us out of that and makes us alive. And so if, we were, if we're in that state and Jesus has woken us up and made us alive and now we're allowed to live in true freedom following after him, then why would we go back to that life of sin? Why would we choose death over life? Why would we choose to be enslaved over to be free? If the doors of the jail cell had been opened up, up for us and we walk out of that, why would we turn around and walk back in the jail cell and then shut the door? That's settling for a secondary life than the life that Jesus has offered us. The Apostle Paul in Romans 6, 1 and 2, he says, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? He says, of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Later on in verse 12, he says, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's what? His grace. You live under the freedom of God's grace. So if at any point... The rationale behind decisions that we're going to make is, oh man, I guess, God, I guess God will forgive me anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Then we're taking God's grace for granted. Don't take God's grace for granted. When Jesus gave up his life so that his grace could free you from that, why would you go running back to that and minimize what Jesus has done for you on the cross? So those are the two extremes, the two things that can prevent us from experiencing the power of God's grace in our life. Here's the main point for us tonight. Rising above a life of either self-righteousness, which says I don't really need God's grace, or sinful living, which says I can just take it for granted, do what I want, requires a full understanding of God's grace. And I'll be honest with you. I don't even know that I have a full understanding. I don't know if any of us have a full understanding of it. Because the more we understand it, the more it blows us away, the more we don't feel like we deserve it. And honestly, the result of that is the more in love we are with Jesus. The more we desire to go, God, I mean, if you love me that way, why would I go running back to that life? God, I want to run after you and pursue you and live the life of freedom that you gave up your life to give me. 
So Paul is standing at the end of his life. And he's looking back and he's reflecting on a God who even in the moments of his biggest failures and mistakes, he saw a God whose grace was bigger than that, whose grace could overcome it. As you look about your life today or tonight, do you see God's grace and God's faithfulness at work in your life? Are you able to see those moments and those situations of going, man, God, I, I didn't, definitely didn't deserve your love in that situation. Are you able to look back and reflect on those moments and those times where even in the midst of those shortcomings and those failures and those sins, that God's grace was stronger. And the amazing, incredible news for all of us tonight, a trustworthy saying that all of us should accept, is that no matter what sin is in your past, or even in your present, or even your future, God's love and His grace is chasing after you and is strong enough to overcome it. Is strong enough to rise above whatever it is that may be holding you back. And God's desire for you tonight is for you to understand more of that grace, to understand your need for it, and then to not live in such a way that takes it for granted. Would you guys bow your heads tonight? Maybe as we close tonight, maybe you're in the room tonight and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. I know sometimes maybe there's some confusion about exactly what that means. Basically what that means is there's been a moment in your life where you've realized that you were dead in your sins and that your sins separated you from God. That you missed the mark. And because of that, the only solution was to put your faith and trust in Jesus and receive the forgiveness that he's offering you through his death on the cross. That when you couldn't be good enough to fix your sin problem when you missed the mark, Jesus hit the mark for you. And if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, you can do that tonight by simply saying, God, I understand I've missed the mark. And my sin separates me from you. And I need you to make me alive. To forgive me of my sins. To rescue me. And free me out of this life of sin. God, I'm trusting you as my Savior. Maybe for some of us that have done that, but then we've lived as if we haven't. Yes, God's grace and love will always cover us and be available to us. But let's not take it for granted. Let's not pat ourselves on our back in self-righteousness and feel like we don't actually need it. But every day waking up and going, God, I'm a sinner and I fall short and I'm thankful for your grace. And God, I need your grace to cover me today as I walk through the day. God, I pray that you would help us to understand 
more about your grace. God, give us the perspective that Paul has to be able to own up to his sin and say, hey, this is me. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst there is. And I can't believe that God loves me the way that he does, but he does. And if he can love me, then he can love anyone else and he can forgive anyone else. God, thank you that you love us that way, that it covers every sin and then you invite us to be a part of your work and spreading the good news of the gospel. God, help us to do that. I pray for students who have never trusted you, God, tonight that you would draw them into a relationship with you and they would understand what it means to follow after you and receive the forgiveness that you offer. God, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.